standard issue for all women. Hi, Hannah here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. As I'm recording this, I'm also packing my suitcase and about to get on a plane to Dublin. One of the many, many seemingly simple things that go on in my life that might become a lot more complicated after March when we leave the EU slash crash out of the EU. Now, we've made our opinions on Brexit pretty clear since we've started this podcast. We don't assume your views on Brexit, but I think something that we can all agree on is that what is potentially about to happen to this country isn't what a lot of people voted for. And that includes people who voted leave. As you probably know, on October the 20th, which is a Saturday, in central London, there will be a march for the people's vote. We will be there by we, I mean Mickey, Jen and I. And we would encourage everyone who feels strongly about Brexit to join us. In fact, if you see us, please feel free to come up and give us your views. We'll have our kit with us. We're aiming to get as many views as possible from people of all age groups from all over the country. If you want to know a bit more about what the situation currently is with Brexit, maybe this podcast can help you. This week, we've got two interviews with two women who know a lot about what they're talking about. First up, we're talking to Amanda Chetwin Cowerson from the brilliantly titled FFS for Future's Sake, which is a young people and student-led anti-Brexit campaign, which is fighting for a people's vote on the terms of the Brexit deal. Amanda comes from Cornwall, which overwhelmingly voted Leave. So she's got a good insight, not just on what young people think, but also on what a lot of people who voted Leave were hoping for when they put that tick in the box. Coming up afterwards, we have an interview with Gina Miller, which I can tell you more about after the break. But to start with, here's us talking to Amanda. You and I met before. We met at a rally in Cambridge where you gave a speech and... I gave a speech of sorts. What I was really struck by there was actually the wide age range there. Mm-hmm. On the stage, I think the, the youngest people people were probably in their early 20s. Mm. The oldest people appeared to be in their, I would say, late 70s, maybe. Yeah. That's not the narrative that we are sold, really, in the media, is it? That it's old people against young people. Has that been your experience since you've started? Yeah, definitely. I think it's really interesting as well because a rally in Cambridge isn't necessarily something I think where people would be like, oh, you know, you'll have... So we were speaking to somebody who was 23 uh, and you wouldn't... You're right, you wouldn't expect to have everything from 23 to, I think, probably 80, like, year olds mixture. But I think it's really easy to say, oh, Brexit divides people along age lines. But I think it maybe has started to move away from that because actually people don't talk so much about like Brexit. They talk about the impact of Brexit on the NHS or uh, freedom of movement or education and that women's rights. And I think those are all things that completely transcend like age boundaries, generations, probably yeah. what I mean. So I reckon when the campaign, like People's Vote and FFS started, there was maybe a bit more kind of like generational divide. But as we've done loads of polling and research and like brought people together in different regions, I think actually it started to, in quite like a nice way, like bring people 
together a bit more across those age boundaries and like obviously we are a student and youth-led like bit of it so we predominantly work with people who are between 18 to 30 but we get emails all the time from people who are over 30 and under 18 offering support or like donating to us or asking how they can get involved so the thing I find most staggering about this is it's possible to be 20 years old in Mm. this country and I've lived with this for two years and and still never have been given a vote on it in the first place Mm. I know so since 2016 it's like one and a half million people have turned 18 yeah Uh, I find that actually slightly staggering because they've never had a say on something that's literally going to define for some of them their job prospect for some of them their ability to work and travel abroad what subjects they might be able to do at university if a course doesn't get funding anymore that's one of our main it's one of the statistic that always goes down like best inverted commas on twitter is when we put out a graphic about how many people have turned 18 since i mean i suppose presumably from the other end i mean i can say this from from anecdotal personal experience the only person that i know who voted leave has subsequently died since the vote happened. Oh no, really? Yeah. I guess maybe that's what's so interesting about somewhere like Cornwall though, because like I had friends who are my age, older, younger than like mm. months, whatever, who voted leave and they did it for those kind of family employment reasons. Mm. So they're from agricultural backgrounds or like fisheries backgrounds. I think it, my sense of it is coming from Harwich, you've been to Harwich, my yeah. hometown, a very, very staunchly uh, leave area. I think right. 73% leave wow. in in that like borough or whatever it's called and my sense is that it's more a geographical thing than a generational thing i think there's i think if you asked most people in my hometown regardless of their age they would say they voted to leave mm. um and i think and, and it's a fucking port town as well like, yeah. it, like their whole any business they have it's quite a deprived area any business they have is via the EU, basically. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the east of England, where we were Mm. at the East of England rally, it contains a city that has one of the highest Remain votes, which is Cambridge, I think, was 74%. I'm so bad at regional stats. (laughs) 74%. And the highest Leave votes, which was Great Yarmouth, which was Mm. something like 74% in the other direction. Yeah, Mm. Um, yeah, we're dealt with as a a single region. We, we all share an MEP. I mean, how they represent all our interests, I don't know, or some MEPs, but... Yeah, I think maybe when you look at it from, like, a geographical point of view, like, that's probably more interesting. Like, I, at the time of the referendum, I probably couldn't have told you who my MEP was, but I also didn't see that actually as, like, important... Like, bizarrely, I didn't see that as something that was important for me still wanting to remain inside the EU. It was more like the principles of it. But I also think if you just look at some of the work that's been done over the summer, the shift in people's attitudes has been, particularly young people, has been, like, unbelievable in terms of, like, you have these areas. So, like, the north is kind of one of those very broad term there. Um, And and Wales as well, like how do young people there now feel about how the negotiations are going or would they remain tomorrow? And it's like staggeringly high for 18 to 25 year olds, how many of them would want to stay? How many of them want to stay and reform? How many of them think the whole thing's been a complete joke? Like it's always under 15% for that one. And to me, that's just like so telling about how it's been going over the last two years. Yeah. One of the things that you covered in your speech, now, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but one of the things that you you covered in your speech is essentially that Brexit is a feminist issue because anything that affects 
everyone tends to have a worse impact on Mm -hmm. women how is that message going down mixed really in the sense that you know on the day I had a couple of elderly gentlemen and a middle-aged woman I think come up to me and say oh that was so divisive like you shouldn't have called the MPs male pale and stale like I think that's a really they were kind of saying that they really disagreed with the message and I don't particularly mind actually if people disagree with the message I just kind of always say to them okay you know who's a leading female MP who is actually leading on Brexit who's genuinely delivering on again either side of the argument and then it gets so interesting then and I get the same on Twitter people will say oh we've got a female prime minister and I'm like brilliant what's she done for women like in the negotiations and no one can pick out like an example of what she's done everybody could talk about and again it actually doesn't matter what you think everyone could talk about a way that the NHS has been implicated or discussed they could talk about agriculture all the stuff we've already been over but nobody can actually talk about women's rights and like you know when there's an economic downturn women get hit first there's articles going out saying oh you know because of a lack of um eu health and like care professionals um we're going to need more people from the uk to work in that kind of palliative care towards like when people are in like retirement homes and all the articles were like oh women all have to women are going to have to do this and I was a bit like so we already live in a society where women are actually second class citizens to a certain extent Brexit isn't going to make that better but no one's talking about it so like I'm kind of fine with the action because I just quite enjoy starting a conversation really. And of course you can't really argue that women make I don't think you can argue. Uh, I might have to check my statistics uh. here. I don't actually have a statistic, but um, <laughs> I think it's fairly widely accepted that women make greater use of public services. Yes. Because yeah. women have babies, for example, yeah. and things like that. So mm. they require more healthcare in that respect, or they are claiming child benefits because mm. they're usually the primary carers of children and they're and also the elderly. And the elderly. Mm. And all sorts of, and and pensions they don't earn as much money so they you know need pensions well things like that so it will be women who feel the bonnet yeah. if our economy tanks which and that's yeah that and that's just because i mean obviously that's true but that is also like just the economic side of it people don't really like talking about it for some reason but you know after the referendum like, hate crime spiked and realistically it's gendered hate crime which is always ahead of every other form of hate crime I don't have to say that Her, happens most whatever the yeah. right phrase there is and you know some of my friends who wear like hijabs or burqas or whatever they've kind of been caught up in this anti-migrant rhetoric or the... legitimized it yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry like they've legitimized it but you know like one of my friends has never left Birmingham my whole life like she's as British as I am but she just happens to wear a hijab and but she gets it more than her male counterparts because she is like visibly Muslim so yeah I can't for me it doesn't matter which like aspect of the argument you look at like women are not doing very well out of Brexit and not represented within like the conversation around it anyway no absolutely right you did actually have a um a launch on Monday yes which was women and yeah Brexit. women for people's vote yeah yeah so you you had quite a few speakers there didn't you quite fun ones so from the FFS point of view we had uh, Emily Chapman who's NUS vice president she's like fantastic spokespeople for 
people who are in colleges so they're already kind of slightly left out of conversation when it comes to education everybody just talks about unis not colleges and she spoke like really passionately about like women in education and like people who are returning to education if you're a woman at a different age Boris Johnson's sister spoke which I just thought was brilliant like Rachel Johnson you know I like her yeah she was quite funny she was quite a good speech actually your face <laughs> she was great on the day <laughs> but uh, but yeah no, we, so we use it as an opportunity to like profile some of our young female campaigners and it just goes to show like we were putting out graphics on Twitter that had my face and my reason I guess as a woman for being involved and some of the reaction from like men on Twitter was just as predictable as it can be yeah. but you know, we we don't get that if we put Richard's face out on Twitter. It's odd, isn't it? Because you find yourself in the situation that I would say maybe a lot of journalists do, a lot of stand-up comedians do, in the here and in America, when the world is on its ass, like it seems to be at the moment, it's simultaneously the best and the worst time for you because mm. it's presented. Brexit has presented an opportunity for young people to be involved in politics yeah. that hasn't really existed before now mm. I think it's a shame it's taken this but in the same way that it, it's never hard for us to find something to take the piss out of in the news yeah you know this is in a way suddenly we are we have birthed a, a new generation of political campaigners mm. are you able to look at it like that or are you still or do you still feel um, like you're in a position of you would rather this had never happened I hadn't really thought about that I guess I mean yeah I guess so like it's given myself and like a group of other campaigners uh, some quite fun like jobs and like projects and like opportunities and some of the people that we've got to meet just because they want to actually hear like what young people from all across the UK think about it has been I guess you could say it's like good because it's quite fun sometimes Mm. but I mean obviously it would be nice if MPs felt this accountable to young people all the time (laughs) but um like some of them yeah some of them definitely don't so it's a shame. Like I'm hoping that if we get our way and there is a people's vote and young people really like drive the conversation behind it, then obviously you would hope that would be almost like the first domino in like a long history and future of like political conversations that young people could like really lead. But yeah, like it's a really interesting one because we've had other people ask us that as well. And I actually sometimes don't know how to answer because I do really like enjoy my job, but I enjoy it because we're in a bit of a shit situation and I just think young people have to like be given the space to sort out but young people also have to young people also have to vote Mm -hmm. if they want politicians to value them and their opinions they have to show up and vote which obviously we did see in Mm. the last general election do you think that this will be do you think that that sense of participation will continue amongst young people going forward uh, so I hope so so the turnout of like 18 to 25 year olds in the 2016 referendum was really high it was like 64 65 so like obviously it's not 100 percent, but there's no age group that has 100 percent. but I also think like I just think there's something to be said around the fact that our political system is just so inaccessible from like the word go because as far as I'm aware, like when I was at school, you're not taught about it no. compulsory. It's if you take a politics GCSE or A level or whatever. Um, MPs often hold constituency sur- um, surgeries on like a Friday. And it's like, well, 
what, what should we do skip school go chat to you like do you know what I mean and like it's just from the word go there's just these ridiculous barriers like put in place to people either who have a full-time job or who are working but I think also one thing that we've seen out of this is MPs um I don't know, charities, organisations, whatever, they'll ask to meet with us, our campaigners, people in all different regions, and they'll be like, oh, we really want to hear your views. And then you put across your views, and mine would be, oh, I'm really pro-freedom of movement. Like, yes, I think sometimes you need different or, like, better, like, regulations around it, but broadly it's something I'm just really big on and immediately the person will turn around and be like oh but you don't understand like this oh you've not experienced that like oh you don't understand the logistics for this part of the world and I'm like well you don't turn 18 and suddenly get like a load of new knowledge in your head yeah you don't go from the you don't leave the 18 to 24 bracket and go to the 25 to 40 bracket and get a load of new migration statistics in your head Mm. so like it's a really like invalid argument but it's said to young people and students every single hour every and, and single to be honest, day saying i would like to maintain freedom of move freedom of movement is no more simplistic than the argument that we're going to give 350 million pounds to the nhs yeah, or a exactly. lot of the arguments coming from the other direction i mean yeah. a lot of it still appears to be pie in the sky a lot of what's coming in in our direction from project leap mm. I know that you, as a group you have an idea. What personally for you is your biggest concern about if Brexit happens? I think I really value being part of a society, a group of friends, uh, like a workplace that not everybody looks like me, not everyone's got the same story as me. People's families come from all different parts of the world, but we have like the same kind of principles and values as like a core part of I guess who we are and how we hold ourselves and I just think Brexit is gonna shut the doors to that and it really frustrates me when people say oh you know but we'll be able to do all this with the rest of the world and all that with the rest of the world and I'm like well I don't I I don't feel like being part of the EU is stopping that currently I feel we're not actually opening ourselves up to the rest of the world we've already got that I feel like we're actually just like getting rid of quite like a large chunk of land of opportunities and like that's what really frustrates me most of my friends probably feel the same and I think we've grown up in a generation it was like I was saying about my friend from Birmingham earlier she is British Pakistani she wears a hijab like she describes herself as a person of colour but she also says she's British and I don't think she's any less British than me so I sometimes just think my generation's got like a different definition I guess of Britishness. I think of this whole business as I, I think of it as like a human rights issue and I don't know mm. that I wonder why no one's kind of making more of a point of that my citizenship is being taken away from me yeah. how does someone just get to take my citizenship away from me under any other circumstances that would be a human rights issue why isn't that a human rights issue Jen you may have just stumbled upon the thing that <laughs> saves us from Brexit if, you, if you're a lawyer and you're listening get in touch with Jen been tweeting about this for months ago. <laughs> yeah. But it's really interesting because like that was never mentioned. People they'll show me I don't know loads of newspaper articles where it was mentioned. It was never done in a proper way where the majority of the population, I would argue, actually felt like they understood what it means to be like an EU citizen. And like realistically, yes, you had a campaign for how many months in 2016, but this anti european rhetoric had been going on for what like before i was born like 40 years or something so and i think it was never countered and they were just allowed whoever it was was just allowed to do what they wanted so that's why we're probably only just starting outside of the like metropolitan elite bubble to have that conversation because it just didn't happen like before 2016 
Do you think now we're at a stage where, in the same way that support for Donald Trump, for example, will always bottom out at about 39%, because Mm. there's about 39% of people who don't give a fuck. Whatever facts you give them about him, they don't care, as long as he's saying they can be racist and they can own their guns. They don't care. Do you think that we, at this stage, there's anything that could be done to change hearts and minds in people who are solidly leave? I think it kind of depends, because I I think some people voted leave and they had such legitimate reasons for voting leave. And again, like that was a lot of like my really close friends and like my family as well. But I just think for a lot of people, it's actually become about pride as much as anything. They don't feel, they've not been allowed to celebrate being English, essentially, or being British, being whatever, for the last however many years, a few decades, a couple of decades. And so this is like a little thing about hope inside them, that they'll be able to feel that again. We may have like our views on that, but some of my friends from Cornwall, who are a couple of generations maybe older than me, because they've been told they depend on the EU for money, or they depend on migrant workers for their farm to keep going over the summer, they don't actually feel English or British or Cornish anymore, and it's like a really fundamental part of their identity that's gone. But that's really interesting, because from someone who comes from that huge generic lump in the middle that is called the home counties... (laughs) I would look at Cornwall and think that that was a place that actually had an identity. That being Cornish, you go down there, you see the flags. There is still a language, not as commonly spoken perhaps as as it has been in the past, but there is still a a, a Cornish community. And to be a Cornishman in the same way to be a Yorkshireman actually means something. That is quite funny. Whereas to be a Buckinghamshire girl means nothing. Because Essex, also a very high... Leave population also has like quite a distinct identity compared to other parts of yeah. the UK. Yeah, that's true. I have one last question for you, yeah. which is how do people get involved? So they can go on any form of social media like Instagram, Twitter, whatever, and look up FFS, Google it, like all that kind of stuff. We've got a website that's got a section that breaks it down into starting a society or getting involved in the Labour Party or Conservative Party aspect of it. But also, we quite like just chatting to people on the phone and seeing what they want to do and then we just help them do it because it's going to be so much more impactful if they have an idea and we help them deliver it rather than the other way around of doing it and you guys will be at the people's vote march yeah so it's actually one of our campaigners who called for the whole thing it was um, amate at the national union of students Conference. oh i met him the other day he was he's great isn't he? He yeah yeah yeah. Uh, so he called for it back uh, end of march now and he'll be one of the speakers hopefully on the day so there's gonna be quite a large contingent of students and young people will probably be the ones in brightly colored t-shirts as is our brand i guess so yeah like people can come grab us anytime or just like message us on any form of social media or whatever absolutely fine and people can still sign the petition yeah so if you go to uh, the people's vote website the petition's up there um it's got hundreds of thousands of signatures now and at some point i'm sure it will be being delivered to the change makers the people who currently hold all the power saying actually we want some of that back and we want to vote on the final deal terrific thank you so much for your time Amanda. No, thanks for having me thank you Hi again, Hannah here. As I said earlier, we interviewed the brilliant Gina Miller back at the end of August about her new book, Rise Up. And while we were there, of course, of course, we asked her what she thought about the current situation with Brexit. And here's what she said. 
can I ask where we are now today, the end of August 2018, March 2019 is looming. Mm. Do you feel any more positive about the situation for Brexit than you did when you started this? I feel absolutely terrified of where we are. Today is the day of the first release of the technical um, papers on no deal. We have eight weeks before the next summit when we are supposed to be signing off the deal. And whilst the government is saying, well, you know, we've agreed lots of things, 70%, they they don't forget. They haven't reminded people that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So if we get to eight weeks and the summit and we don't have Ireland sorted out, some of the more technical parts of it, then all that green turns to red. And we are faced with a very stark choice. I said after the vote, after the case, I said, look, we're all leavers now. We've got to make the best of this. We've got to have a competent government that looks at what... And I thought it should have been cross-party. And we can't go back. We can only talk about where we are now. Where we are now is, I think, the most irresponsible government I can think of for decades because of two things. One is they have not done the work, and I know this from the EU side, because it's either one of two reasons that they finally realized how difficult it was. And two is, in that void of no solution, they're hoping if they do nothing, the EU will find a solution for them and just will come up with a Canada deal, whatever it is. So why do all that work when they're just going to, you know, the EU is going to suffer. As, you know, everybody in this suffers. Nobody comes out of this unscathed. So the EU will just come up with a solution. So, you know, they've already done more or less most of the work. So... There's that. And the second thing is, how do they actually get out of the hole they've just dug themselves into? Because the hole started quite shallow with the fact that Brexit happened because it was supposed to be about healing the Conservative Party. Nobody thought Leave would win. So there was no plan A, B, C, D or anything on any side because nobody ever thought Leave would win ever. So they then suddenly had to pick up and, you know, think about it. But over the two years, they've dug, they've dug themselves in a hole that's so deep. How on earth do they get out of it? And that's the problem. They're in so deep. How do they have the conversation with the British people of saying, we need to tell you the truth now, yeah. which is the reason why this will not end well for us is not because Britain is not a fantastic country. It is because our membership of this club for 44 years where we paid in a sub, meant that we didn't have to invest in people, infrastructure, to sell goods, to do our own laws, to build the pool, to be, you know, we didn't actually have to do any of that. So when we leave the club, we don't have any of that infrastructure in place. We may be able to do it in the future, but right now, we don't have the infrastructure, we don't have the people, we don't have the talent, and we don't have the laws. Yeah. And that's an honest conversation that they need to have with people and say, this is the reality that you're facing with. It could, t- it could be, you know, short-term pain for long-term gain. But then say to people, this is what the choices are. Do you still want this to go ahead? But there is not an ounce of honesty that I'm seeing in anything that comes from this government. And dishonesty is not going to get us into a place that is safe, that we feel secure, and we can get back to our lives. 
It is the most, I mean, I, I, the words fail me, but the level of incompetence and irresponsibility is on a scale I would never have imagined two years ago. I, I do feel like we, we, the best word to describe how we have been with Europe, as in not us as a nation, but as in the representatives sent to Europe to discuss it, is petulant children, really. We don't seem to have even gone in with anything other than... It doesn't seem like negotiations. It's like we went in and said, we want this, and they said no, and then we threw all our toys uh, on the uh, floor and ran away. You know, it, it's like we've been on two different roads, you know, and one, we'd actually never crossed or engaged. We're sort of going in parallel, and uh, everything is lost in translation that's been coming from them, because actually the EU has stuck to its gun all the way. Yeah. Because the other thing that people don't appreciate, perhaps, is that... This negotiation is not actually just between the EU and us. Because say the EU, that fantasy Brexit deal happened and the EU gave us another special deal. Because by the way, remember, we already have a special deal that no other country has. Mm. We are not in Schengen. We're not in the EU. We got a big rebate. We did, we're not in the euro. You know, we've already got the most special deal you can get out of the EU. But suppose we were able to get a Brexit type special deal. They would have to offer that. To every other t member state. Not only that, because we're out of the EU and we're what's called a third country, and they gave us a special deal as a third country, they'd have to offer that to every single other third country. That means 164 WTO members. So are the EU going to give us a deal, which then means that nearly 200 countries would have to be offered the same deal as us? That's the thing. They're yeah. not just negotiating with us. Yeah. That thing you say about the two roads, it feels like there is this things that are actually happening and then there's the things we're being told <laughs> that are happening and those two things, reality and fantasy, are going to coincide in March 2019. Well, no, no, no. This is where the problem is. There are two massive myths that we need to dispel very urgently. One is that no deal means we remain because there are an awful lot of people, I do a huge amount of social media listening, who think, like a car, if you've got a car and you go to buy another car and you don't get a deal on that car, you still you've got your old one. Yeah. So no deal does not mean remaining. No. It does not mean status quo. It means the car's just blown up. No deal means no transition and we are not staying as we are. So that's the first thing that is a myth. The second thing is that we've got till March next year. We've actually only got till end of November, possibly. Oh, God. No, end of October. <laughs> no, 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 no. We've only got till end of October, end of November this year. And the reason for that is once we decide a deal, we then, like you imagine, you make a contract with someone. You need to have the legals. The contract needs mm. to be written and signed. And that is called ratification, which needs to happen not just with 27 member states, but every single parliament in the EU. So that's 32 parliaments have to review and sign off after the EU Parliament signs it off. So that ratification process needs to start at the end of this year. So it is not that we have till March next year. No. We only have till 8 to 12 weeks. That is it. You know your stuff way better than me, but it seems to me just in sort of looking at human nature that what's brought this about is people who are more concerned about their personal legacy than the sort of legacy for the rest of the country. I don't. I, I, I see it through a different lens in that Brexiteers, people who are supporting Brexit, are not stupid. They're very bright men. Are they carpetbagging? They have a different agenda. 
there is a different ideology that they believe in. And they really do honestly believe that Britain should be lower regulations, lower taxation, an offshore island off Europe, where we allow, you get rid of money laundering checks. Businesses don't need red tape, such as maternity mm. laws and, you know, we're part-time workers to be treated the same as full-time workers and maternity. Let's, you know, it's such a lot of problems for employers to have to deal with people's rights. Let's get rid of those. And, you know, who wants standards on paint on toys or food or environmental, uh, you know, who wants all Clean that beaches, stuff? Clean beaches, yeah. Who needs all that stuff? Let's have it so that it's all about choice. And if you've got the money, you can buy the good stuff. And if you haven't got the money, well, you can buy the cheap stuff. It's an ideology. It is not about being stupid. The idea of leaving with no deal is clearly insane. Like, well, it appears insane. But is, so that's the agenda, is it? I have specifically, because I always want straight answers to simple questions. So I asked, what happens on the 30th of March next year if it's no deal? And the answer I got back is, well, we would immediately, for example, three things. We would reduce some of our, we wouldn't charge tariffs to goods going out and going, we'd have open, open borders. Thinking, mm, and what do you think WTO would say about that? Don't think it worked quite like that. And what we will do is we would then go to the rest of the world and say uh, we, we will change the rules on export-import. For example, in Saudi, we will say, well, you can import meat from the UK, but we won't follow the same stunning laws or the way, same hygiene and hail veterinary soap. So we, you can have our stuff much, much cheaper, and we don't have to do all of that. When it comes to money laundering, we could reduce those. So, you know, be it from Saudi, wherever. People can bring their money. Lots of people want to bring their money into the UK. Our banks will be fine. But we won't check where it came from. So basically, we operate with no moral compass. Oh, God, it's like that Michelin Web thing when the Nazis realise that they're the bad guys. <laughs> What's going to happen to us? But they, So it is not... It is an agenda. It is an agenda mm. that fits in with what's going on in, in, in the US. It is an agenda that's being pushed by Russia. And I see, keep saying to people, who will be our friends when we leave? Yeah. Because yeah. You, you, you tell... All the, the good guys. <laughs> well, well, that's right. You, tell, you, you, you can tell a lot by, um, about someone by the company, by the they, company keep. they keep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen to the UK. We will be you know, looked at by the company we keep. Hey, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> Is there any way this is not going to happen? Oh, absolutely. How um, likely do you think that? Please don't be well, well, I don't know. No, I think the choices, and I think this has to be about choices. Um, first of all, people are waking up to the fact that this is not as easy, easiest deal we'll ever do or any, any of that sort of ease people waking up to. My concern is do we have enough time? Bearing in mind is that eight to ten weeks. I see if the politicians can start being honest and say, look, guys, we need to tell you something, and then you make your choice. I think mm-hmm. responsibility has to come back to us because you also have to remember that they want to keep their hands clean. This is about long term. This is their careers. Whereas, and how do they keep their hands clean? What you do is it's not my choice. It's not my decision. It's the will of the people. What mm-hmm. happens next? So I think that bearing in mind that Mrs. May has said repeatedly that she will not give a free vote for the meaningful vote to politicians in autumn, and it will only be the deal or no deal. How is that a real choice? There, I think it's got to come back to the people. And I keep being told all the time we don't have enough time. Well, actually, it might well end up you're in the general election or uh, another uh, vote. But we have to 
draw a line under this. So my mind is MPs vote in autumn to, have, to return it to the people in early next year. We have a vote and we decide on very clear facts what it is the people are going to choose to do next. And we have to draw a line under this because in the meantime, we have zombie parliament. We're not doing any sort of domestic no. policy. We have bleed, we're bleeding money of so, uh, out of, public, of uh, the public purse to do this, to send politicians flying around the world, to have their own jet, to talk about. The waste that's happening with our money is criminal. So we have to stop this so we can get back to looking after the very people who were hurting in the first place. What bit of advice, if someone is sitting at home wanting to stop this, what's the best way for them to go about doing it? Is it to go to the People's Vote March? Is it to... You know, no, politicians. This, this, I mean, showing your... Signing the petitions are fantastic. I mean, we're nearly, I think, collectively, the, politi- the um, petitions are over a million. So it's done their job, the show. The polls are shifting dramatically, irrespective of what party you're in or which part of the country. So that's all happening. The buck stops with the politicians. The politicians are the ones who are going to make the next step happen. So I'd say if you're sitting at home, find out your, politi- your MPs. Remember, if it's your money paying for them, mm. you elected them, they're responsible to you. Fill their letterbox, their email box, their surgeries. Ask them straightforward questions. What's going to happen in, uh, in the, to the teachers? Who's going to look after my kids at school? Yeah. Who's going to look after my parents when they go into A&E or in a social care home? Who's going to look after bringing in the food? Just ask, you know, how is this going to happen? Just give me some straightforward answers. And that's what I'd ask them is say, go and pester them. Um, I got told the other day by somebody, um, a group who got together writing letters, that they know their letters are going in the bin. And I said, absolutely fine. Carry on writing. Let the bin overflow. Just don't stay quiet. Yeah. It is not a time to stay quiet and let them slip another agenda through the back door yeah. on Brexit. Yeah. I mean, I'm in a very fortunate position. Daniel Zeichner is, is ardently, ardently remain. I don't know how annoyed I would be if I, my MP was... Was, was but, throwing but, my letters and, in the and bin. And I'd say if you're a Labour party, if you're a Labour member or a Labour party, well, members have already said that they want 73% want to have another say. But if I'd say if you, you, you've got to speak to the front bench of the Labour Party and say yeah. you are the official opposition, you believe in people's rights, you believe in protecting ordinary people, you have to speak up. You have to start giving straight answers to the people of Britain. I sent a letter to my MP, Diane Abbott, shortly after the referendum and said, I'm, you know, as a member of your constituency in Hackney, we voted overwhelmingly to remain. Yes, of course. Um, and I want you to, you know, basically block this or do whatever you have to do or vote for, <laughs> you know, vote for another blah, blah, blah. And of course, famously, she didn't. And then I got, I got a letter back that said that had the same sentence twice <laughs> said, <laughs> thanks for contacting me about the uh, increase of racism in the wake of the referendum it's like i mean I, I that's a bad thing i'm i'm on board with you doing something about that but it's not actually what i wrote, I wrote you, you about <laughs> um, i mean the thing is that uh, i think now we have to stop to, it's not about leave or remain it's not about referendum it is actually about the future and the country we want. What is it that we value as a society? What are our values? What are our principles? What do we stand for? What do we want the rest of the world to think of brand Britain? Because right now it's very dented. And that's where we all have responsibility. It's not about the past, it's about the future. Yeah. 
Well done, Gina. I feel, yeah. <laughs> I feel like you need to go out and do yeah. something immediately. <laughs> Hannah looks in equal measure, like, you know, reinvigorated and, and distraught. <laughs> I think. No. I say, I'll leave you with one fact. I, want you, I, I, I get told by people that it's too late or whatever, and it's not, not too late. Nothing is agreed until everything agree, is agreed. That's one thing. But also I remind them of the fact that um, towards the end of the world, Second World War, when Churchill came, and uh, I don't know if you've seen the film The Hour, The, the Final Hours, or the, the, the recent... Gary yeah, yeah. I have, yeah. Is that actually... So everything was lost. The war was over, and Germany was going to win. But it was six weeks the war was won in six weeks mm. when Churchill came to power. Anything is possible. Yeah. Let's hope so. So that's our chops for this week. Thanks very much for listening. Coming up on Wednesday, we'll have another podcast for you in which we talk to loads of brilliant women, including Anna Sampson, the anthologist, who we talk to about women poets, as it is National Poetry Day on the 4th of October. If you would like to come to one of our shows, please get yourself over to Sarah's website, which is www.sarahmillican.co.uk forward slash standard hyphen issue and all of the upcoming dates are listed there. In the meanwhile, enjoy the rest of your Sunday and stay frosty. Standard issue for all women.